you are dismissed to Children's Church. And everybody else, if you have your Bibles, if you want to open them up tonight, we are going to be in the book of Romans tonight, taking a break from our study of Acts. And tonight, we're going to be talking about um, Easter weekend and and the resurrection of our Lord. Um, So we're looking at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses, excuse me, 1 through 11 in Romans chapter 8. If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can read it up on the screen and follow along with me. Starting in verse 1, it says this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature, and so God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have, and in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the, sinful nature is not, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God, and it never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. And so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. And the Spirit of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for um, this, this incredible weekend, Lord, that we celebrate. Where our Savior went to a cross and died and then three days later walked out of the tomb alive. Changing our lives, changing this world forever. Heavenly Father, I, I know that this story is probably not new to most of us here, but God, let us be amazed all over again by the incredible message of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ tonight. God, I pray that, that you would be glorified in this service, that you would be glorified in each one of us. Father, you know what we need to hear, whether it's encouragement, whether it's a challenge, whether it's conviction, Lord, I don't know. But God, you do because you know each one of us. And so, Lord, whatever it is that you want to do in our lives tonight, do it. And I pray that you would reign. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right, well, now you think about the course of time, and everything has happened throughout the course of time, whether events or whether inventions or discoveries that have been made, there have been a lot of things that have just changed the course of the world in so many ways. Some things in not so good ways, some events like wars or natural disasters or shall we say pandemics, um, certainly change the world in a lot of ways that aren't so good. But think about some of the amazing discoveries that have really changed the world in positive ways. I mean, something as simple as like 
pasteurization. That sounds crazy, but isn't it nice that we don't have to have a milk guy coming through every day because our milk lasts for, for, for some time? Or, or, or how about antibiotics? How many, how many people's lives have been saved over the decades since somebody, you know, kind of accidentally discovered penicillin, you know? And just think about that. And, and you know, then there's some inventions that have no doubt changed our world, some for the better and maybe some not so good. Uh, like the automobile, aren't you glad that we're not riding across the plains still on a covered wagon or walking behind a horse? Or I mean, automobiles are a fantastic thing, right? Or, or how about an airplane? I mean, like we can literally be from here to the other side of the world in less than 24 hours. And think about what that's done to the message of Jesus, how far it's been able to be spread because of that invention of an airplane, you know. Then there's some, like, maybe not so good things that have changed our world, like television. <laughs> you know, it's good in some ways, I guess, but in a lot of ways, instead of kids being outside using their imaginations, their brains are being rotted in front of the tube, you know. And then there's, like, social media. I mean, I guess, you know, in some ways it's connected people that never would have been connected, but, but boy, it sure caused some problems in society, right? And then, like... Like the telephone. I mean, aren't you glad that we're not, re- we're not like reliant on snail mail anymore? Like we don't need the Pony Express to be driving letters from here to there. Like we can get on the phone and I could talk to somebody clear across the world, right? I mean, just amazing, amazing inventions. I mean, the negative side of it is it's, it's given some of the ladies kind of a permanent crick of the neck. But no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, the guys are laughing and the women are going... You know, but uh, I'm just just teasing about that. But you know, really, when you think about the course of time, there have been like a lot of like life-altering, world-changing things that have taken place. However, none of those things can compare to the impact that Jesus, a couple thousand years ago, going to a cross, dying for sins, and rising victorious. There is nothing that has impacted the world like that event. What Jesus accomplished over those few days has literally changed the lives of billions upon billions of people through the course of time, of which I can assure you that I am one, and I know many, many of us in here have truly been changed by that truth as well. So today as we celebrate Easter weekend, we're going to be talking about the incredible impact of Jesus' life, death, and, re- death and resurrection. Not only the, the impact that it has on our future, but even the impact that it has right now in our present lives before we get into our main verses today, what I want us to do is, is try, to, try to imagine what it would have been like to, to put yourself in the shoes of one of them followers of Christ that was there during the different parts of what we celebrate as Easter weekend. You know, I, I think to an extent we really have a hard time doing that because we know things that they didn't comprehend at the time. You know, although Jesus had plainly told his disciples and those that were following him that, look, I'm going to die, and and then three days later, I'm going to rise again. Like, they didn't grasp that fully. I mean, clearly by their reaction to what took place. And what they certainly didn't grasp was was the effects of what Jesus did, what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. So kind of put yourself in their shoes for a moment. You're somebody that, that looked at Jesus as the Messiah, like the one who was supposed to come and to save Israel, the one that was going to completely set them free. And, and they believed that. I truly believe they looked at him that way. And yet what they didn't realize was that the salvation he was about to bring had nothing to do with freeing them from the Roman Empire. See, in the, middle of, in the mind of the first century Jew, when Messiah came, they were expecting someone that was going to take over and, and, and free them from their oppressors, and he was going to sit in the, and reign in Jerusalem as king of the world, and, and they were going to get to reign alongside of him as his people. 
They were anticipating the Messiah that the prophet Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 61, 3-7. Listen to these verses. This is what the mindset of a Jew would have been in the first century. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. They will, re- they will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them. Though they have been deserted for many generations, foreigners will be your servants. They will feed your flocks and plow your fields and tend your vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. You will feed on the treasures of the nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double share of honor. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land, and every everlasting joy will be yours. See, they held on to stuff like that. They really thought that Jesus was going to come do that right then, there at that time. Now, that's still coming. That's going to happen in the future. But put yourself in their mindset. That's what they were expecting. And didn't they have really good reason to believe so? I mean, think about the things that they witnessed with their own eyes. These followers of Jesus, I mean, they saw him heal the sick People that have been lame for their entire life, they watch them just speak to them or touch them and they, they have their full strength back. Made the blind see. I mean, these disciples were in the boat when the winds and the waves were crashing and they, they thought they were done and Jesus just speaks to the wind and the sea and just says, with the word, be still. And just, I mean, they saw that. Many of them were there when Lazarus was dead for four days and he just, Lazarus come forth and, and the man walks out stone his grave clothes alive. I mean, they had good reason to believe that he was going to do everything the book of Isaiah and so many of the other prophets said that he, that he would. And if he could do all those things, who was Rome to stand against him? Who was the whole world that they couldn't stand against him and they knew it, right? But boy, what Jesus allowed to happen to him that Thursday night through that Friday, that first Easter weekend, it, it no doubt shook them to the core. I mean, then with the mindset of Jesus coming and reigning and doing all those things, what would, have went through, what would have been going through their mind as they watched Jesus being arrested? Taking the trial there at the house of the high priest. What was going through Peter's mind as, as, as he watched and Jesus was, was slapped and, and spit upon by these people? Try to imagine the thoughts of his followers as, as Jesus was paraded in front of the whole city and taken on, on, put on trial before Pilate. What were they thinking? When Barabbas was taken out and, and Pilate's like, look, you can let Jesus go or we can let this notorious murderer go. What do you think about it? And they're like, no, we want Jesus to be crucified. What was going through their minds? When Pilate said, okay. He washed his hands up and he says, take him to be flogged. Take him to be crucified. What was going through their minds as the ones that were still there Saw him being nailed to that cross, hanging there in agony while the religious leaders mocked him. I mean, the religious leaders of Matthew 27, 42 and 43, this is what they were saying to him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we'll believe him. He trusted in God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. I mean, they were hearing these things, and like, I, I, putting myself in their shoes, I couldn't help but just wonder, like, right up to the very end, where they'd be like, man, come on, Jesus, what are you waiting for? 
Show them who you are. Show them now. We believe in you. And yet he just stayed there. And he died. You know, I'm sure for the next couple days, they probably went through all kinds of different emotions. You know, anxiety, doubt, fear. You know, I'm, I'm sure they were some mixed emotions between sorrow of the loss of their such a, he was such a good friend to them. He was their leader, he was their rabbi, and yet mixed with this emotion of frustration or even anger, like, have we been bamboozled? Have we been misled in some way? I can't imagine what they were going through. And yet, like, oh, how that Easter morning must have changed them. Like, when, when Mary and the ladies get to the tomb and it's, and it's gone, and then Jesus is there and she sees him, you know? I mean, you talk about exciting. I mean, she runs back to the house where all the boys were at, you know, and she's like, Jesus is alive. I've seen him. And, and Peter and John are like, this can't be true. They, they run to the tomb and they're like, where, where's he at? He's gone. And they go back wondering. They're back at the house, but oh. Later that evening, they're standing there together and Jesus just like appears before them and, how you doing boys? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the, the overwhelming shock the, mixed with the overwhelming joy that these disciples of Christ had to have experienced in that moment? I mean, if there, if there was any doubt in them at all, that doubt was eradicated and they knew for sure that Jesus was who he says he was. He was Messiah. He was Lord. And yet I wonder even in that moment, like how long did it take them to, to fully grasp the enormity of what Christ accomplished in those few days? Like I wonder how differently they viewed those events that weekend in those 40 days where Jesus was still there as he, I'm sure, explained to them the significance of his death and resurrection. Like, like I wonder what they thought when they, when they saw Jesus like floating up into heaven on the cloud, you know, and they're like, oh, I thought maybe he was going to rain still. <laughs> but there he goes. I wonder what they thought when the angels, angels were looking at him like, what are, you, what are you waiting for? Get busy. Quit looking in the clouds. And you, you get busy doing what Jesus told you to do. And then like the day of Pentecost comes and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know, Jesus told them when the Spirit comes, he's going he's gonna, to you know, bring to memory these things that I've told you and help you understand these things. And like when, when they finally had the Spirit of God in them and finally, finally grasped what Jesus accomplished in those few days. Man, I wonder how that changed your perspective. We can know what their perspective was by what the Apostle Peter wrote a number of years later. In 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5, he was talking about what Christ accomplished and him as a recipient. And Christians said that we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through our faith, God is protecting us by his power until we receive the salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last days for all to see. See, if I had to guess... Their perspective on that weekend changed completely when they finally understood what he did. Like, in, in, in fact, I'm sure if they had to go back and experience it again, knowing what it would accomplish, they would have willingly done it. it. As hard as it was to go through, they would have done it all over again because they finally understood what Jesus did. 
You know, as we think about Easter weekend and the events that transpired when Christ gave his life and rose from the grave, you know, what we're celebrating, we're celebrating isn't, isn't the fact that he had to suffer, the fact that he had to die. We, we celebrate what his death and resurrection did. We celebrate what it, what, it, what it accomplished. We celebrate the fact that he has changed our lives forever. We celebrate the fact that he's opened up the door for people to be set free from the curse of sin in death. We, we celebrate the fact that God's wrath no longer has to be on us because Christ endured God's wrath for us. We celebrate the fact that because he willingly endured what he did, we can now, as his people, have a, a hope that's not just for today, but a hope that goes into eternity because of what Christ has done. You see, that's what this passage here in Romans really is all about. It's, it's the results of what Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. When the Apostle Paul wrote these words in Romans decades after Jesus had ascended to heaven, the entire basis of what he writes here in Romans 8 and really all of his writings in the New Testament is they're founded in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. You know, on that first Easter weekend 2,000 years ago, Jesus changed our world forever, and that's what we're going to be talking about in our, in our remaining time together. And, and to, truly, to truly appreciate what Christ has done, what we must come to grips with, really, to truly appreciate the grace of God is the incredibly hopeless state of humanity before Christ. Because we were in a, this, this world was in, in a really, really bad spot before Christ. If you look at verse 1 of our text, it says that there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ, but before Jesus, what does that imply? It implies that the world and everyone in it was condemned. You know, from the outset of creation, God set a standard for all of us. The standard was to be holy as He is holy. Mankind was to walk in obedience to God's command. The rest and the result would be that they would experience an eternal relationship with him. But God said, um, you know, from the very beginning, that if man didn't obey him, there'd be a penalty. Death would result. And that's exactly what we see happen in the book of Genesis. From the very beginning, when our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, I mean, what we see from the, that very moment is that death and destruction and all these things enter into the world, and we've been reaping the consequence of their choice ever since. In the book of Romans, in chapter 5, and verse 12, it says that when Adam's sin, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. You know, even, we can, even though we can look back and kind of blame him for bringing it in, the truth of it is, is we're all guilty. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And you know, the big problem with sin is, is not merely the physical death that resulted, but rather the eternal separation from God and His judgment on us because of it. Romans 1 and verse 18 says that the wrath of God, His, His righteous judgment is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So because of that sin, the Bible tells us that God's judgment is upon us. And what is that judgment? Well, it's it's eternal condemnation. It's separation from God forever, ultimately in a place called hell. Before Christ, that was the hope of the world, hell. 
2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9 describes it like this. In flaming fire, the Lord will take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When verse 2 speaks of the, the power of sin that leads to death, that's what it's talking about. The result of sin is death and separation from the Lord. The whole world's condemned. Everyone in it under the curse of sin and death. And the problem was, was that people had no way to fix this on their own. See, if you move ahead a few thousand years from Genesis, you get to this man named Moses. Moses. And, and up on the mountain, he goes on the mountain. Moses was the guy who led the Israelites out of Egypt, right? And, and they, they get to Mount Sinai, and he goes up there, and God gives him his law. See, when God gave him his law, this whole idea was that God was calling the people out for himself. He was calling the people who would know exactly what he wanted from them. On Mount Sinai, like God gave Moses literally in written form, penned by the finger of God himself, the exact expectations for his people. And all they had to do was obey it. All they had to do was follow it. And God says, look, I'm going to dwell with you. I mean, he promised to provide for them. He promised to protect them. He says, if you follow these things, I'm going to, do, I'm going to, I'm going to be with you for a thousand generations. If you'll simply follow me. But they couldn't do it. Even with, in written form, all the expectations that God said, they couldn't do it because of the problem of what Romans 1 talks about here, Romans 8 talks about here, of the sin nature that mankind was infected with. You look at verse 3, it says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Like in man's best efforts, they couldn't do it. They couldn't obey. They failed, and they failed miserably. Man cannot save themselves. There was no way they ever could. You look at verses 5 through 8. I'm just going to hit a few, a few pieces of it here. Verse 5, it says that those who are dominated by their sinful nature think only about sinful things. You jump down to verse 6, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. You jump down to verse 7, the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws. It never will. And that's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Friends, before Christ, that was the world's condition. They couldn't do it. Even with the full extent of God's expectations written down in front of them, the people of God couldn't do it. It was impossible for them to save themselves. And the thing of it is today, anybody is separated from Christ is in the same condition. Unable to save themselves, no matter how... How, many, how much effort they put forth, no matter how much charity they do, no matter how much good deeds... They cannot save themselves apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. That was the condition of the world before Christ. And see, boy, that's a real somber thing. That's why wow, we, we talking about that on Easter. Because you can't appreciate the rest of it without understanding that. But you see, now we're going to get to the amazing news. That, that, that God could have left us in this hopeless condition, but he didn't. Instead, he showed us the greatest compassion possible by making a way for us to be forgiven, for us to be set free from that sin nature, from, that, from the death, from God's wrath. How do you do it? By sending his one and only son into this world to do for us what we couldn't do ourselves. The whole purpose he sent in Jesus. Because it was the only way we could be saved. We had no hope in ourselves, we've talked about the incredibly hopeless state of humanity, but now we're going to get to the, we're going to get to the good news, and we're talking about the incredible accomplishment of Christ. See, the question that plagued man since the very beginning is, is how could a person defiled by sin with no ability to be righteous on their own ever do enough to get back into God's good grace? 
How? Well, they couldn't. There was no way. It was absolutely impossible. But the good news is God had a solution. He provided a substitute for us. He provided somebody to come to pay our sin debt and to die in our place. That's what Jesus did. See, from the very first sin that came into the world, God set a a standard for how mankind was going to be made right with him. When, when, When mankind sinned, we were guilty against sinning against God. And so what was the solution to that? And so God set the standard from the beginning, which was the life of somebody that was innocent had to be taken to cover the life of the guilty. If you remember way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, what we see is that, that an animal was sacrificed. Their skin was taken to cover the shame, to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And, and so from the very beginning, that the standard was set, an innocent life had to cover the life of the guilty. You get back to the law of Moses, and that's the whole purpose of the sacrifices. Like, why, why are we killing all these animals? Why are we doing all these things? It's because they were guilty of sin. And to cover their sin, to atone their sin, God had set that standard that, that innocent life had to be taken to cover for the life of the guilty so God's wrath could be removed from the people. But you see, there was still a problem. The problem we see is in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 where the writer says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Like, like an animal could have temporarily appeased God and it did, but, but how could it ever make people holy? How could an animal ever make somebody truly right with God? It couldn't. And so what was God's solution? He sent Jesus to become that sacrifice. And he sent Jesus as a human being. Like, you ever wonder, why, why, why do you have to come as a human? I mean, he was God, and yet he came as a man. Why? Because... As a man, he could do a couple of things that God couldn't. One was to be tempted to sin, and the other one was to die. And both of these things, that we think about the life of Christ and what he accomplished, were, were very important. You know, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 tells us this, the speaking of Christ, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. You see, God, God can't be tempted to sin, which is why Christ had to come so he could. God cannot die, so Christ came as a man so that he could die. Why are those things important? Because Jesus had to live the perfect life so he could become the perfect sacrifice for us. Now see, he lived the life that we couldn't live. We see in verse 3, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. And so God did what the law could not do, and he sent his, old, his own son. If you look in Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 15, it tells us that, that Jesus faced all the same temptations, all the same testings that we do, and yet he did not sin. As, we, as you think about the perfect life of Christ, like he obeyed to perfection every requirement of God's law. When you think about the standard of God's righteousness and holiness, which was absolute perfection, that was the standard to be perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, Jesus, after being tempted for 30-some years, was as perfect at the end of his life as he had ever been in all of eternity. 
And because of this, he was able to die the death that satisfied the fullness of God's wrath that was on mankind. If you look at verse 4, he said he did this so that, he could, so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. Again, the law being God's holy standard. The requirement being perfection. We sinned against God. God demands justice. How could justice ever be repaid from sinful man? The only way was for a perfect sacrifice to be offered. How could anybody do that? We sinned against an infinitely holy God. That would require an infinitely holy sacrifice, which no person could offer. We're infected with sin. With sin. Romans 3. There's no one righteous. No, not one. We couldn't do it. Exactly. That's why it had to be Jesus. He was the only one that could do it. And because he was still holy at the end of his life, his death was the only sacrifice that could satisfy God and bring justice to him. Romans 3 and verse 25 tells us that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. 1 John 2 and verse 2 tells us that Jesus himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sin. And not only ours, but the sins of all the world. That, that word atones there in some of the older translations is this word propitiation, which means to satisfy in full. You think about what Christ did on the cross, God was absolutely and completely satisfied with the death of Christ. Through his offering, God the Father was fully vindicated. The debt was paid in full because Christ was a perfect sacrifice. God accepted the offering and says, paid. That's good news for us, folks. Because he did what we couldn't. Now, that's just Good Friday. <laughs> we haven't even got to Easter yet. Like, what do we celebrate on Easter? We don't celebrate his death. What do we celebrate on Easter? Shout it out. We celebrate his resurrection. We celebrate the fact that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He's alive. Now, have you ever wondered and asked yourself, like, why is that such a big deal? I mean, he, he did... He, he, he paid the penalty for our sins. He, he did the work on Friday. He, he said it is finished, right? So why do you have to rise again? You ever think about that? Well, for a few reasons. One, namely, he said he would, right? And if he didn't, I mean, he'd have been a liar and his death would have been nothing. You ever think about that? Like, if he had rose again, he'd have been a liar. Then he would have had sin and his death would have been useless. So he had to. The prophets spoke of it in old in the Old Testament, and so God had declared it through them centuries before, and so it had to happen. But, but here's the real big reason it had to happen. It was inevitable because he's God. How, how in the world was Jesus going to stay dead? Yes, he came as a man, but he was still fully God. Like, like here's a massive problem that I think Satan missed completely. You can't kill God. It's not going to happen. John 1.4 tells us that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Colossians 1, speaking of Christ, verses 15 through 17 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things consist. How in the world are you going to kill that? Ain't going to happen, folks. Satan tried his darndest, 
But he absolutely failed. Jesus is alive and he shall be alive forever. And we haven't even got to how that affects us yet, but now I'm about to tell you. Because what he did affects us immensely as Christians. See, through his resurrection, he, he not only defeated Satan, he defeated death itself. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 says, Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God that he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, through his resurrection, and through Jesus accomplished what no one else could ever do. Through what Jesus did, God's wrath on sin was fully satisfied. Death was defeated once and for all. Satan is defeated, and Christ has already won the war. Isn't that good news? It ought to get us excited, folks. Because if you know him as Savior, you're on his side. If Christ is for us, who can stand against us? No one and nothing. His victory, friends, is our victory. Christ accomplished an incredible, incredible feat through his death and resurrection. He made salvation possible. And the last thing I want to talk about is just the incredible results for those who have placed their faith in him. You know, what Christ accomplished is incredible, but it doesn't apply to everybody. It's available to everybody, but it doesn't apply to everybody. See, what is offered through Christ is available to all, but they have to receive it before it applies to their lives. You think about one of the most famous verses in Scripture, John 3, 16, for God's love the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that what? Whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, we have to believe that Christ is who he says he is, that Christ did what he said he did. We have to believe that the Bible is true. But it's beyond a belief. We need to have a response to that belief. And Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if, just two letters, but boy, that's a big word, isn't it? There, there's an eternal consequence depending on what we do with that, those two letters. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved first by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and by openly declaring your faith in him that you're saved. See, salvation, the choice. What, what God offers is an incredible gift, the greatest gift ever. And yet it only applies when a person comes to this recognition that when the Bible says all have sinned, that includes me. I have sinned against a holy God and I can't save myself. Jesus, I need what you did to count for me. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you lived a perfect life. I believe you died. I believe you rose again. I believe that's good enough to save me. So Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Give me the grace to live for you. Friends, when that happens, all that Christ did now applies to that person's life. Amen. For one, Jesus' perfect life is accredited to us. You, you look at verse 3 again, and it says the law of Moses was unable to save us, right? But, but you jump down there, 
He says he sent a son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for us. See, Jesus followed the law of God to perfection. He was perfect. He was holy. He was righteous. He was acceptable in God's sight. And the good thing about us is when we get saved, his perfect life, his perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness, guess what? It's transferred to us. It's accredited to our account. Our sin debt is paid in full. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I love this verse. The greatest transaction ever made. He, speaking of Christ, became sin who knew no sin, so what? So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Christ's perfect life transferred to our life. His holiness given to us. Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22, you are his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. That's pre-Christ. Yet, now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body, and as a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and now you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. How about that? Now, if we were honest with ourselves... We're a bunch of screw-ups, aren't we? Like, I, I lost count years ago on my mess-ups and my sins. And yet, verse 1 says that in Christ there is therefore no condemnation. The condemnation's gone. How? How is that possible? Because Christ already paid for it. He took the penalty he was judged on our behalf, and now we stand free and clear of all sin. One of the commentators I read is a guy named Warren Wearsby, and I love the way he put this. He says, the law of double jeopardy, he's speaking of, right? It's a law we have in the country. The law of double jeopardy states that a man cannot be tried twice for the same crime. Since Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and since you are in Christ, God will not condemn you. He's not going to make us pay for what Christ already paid for because Christ stood in our place. And so therefore, we're not condemned. Psalm 103 and verse 12, He has removed our sins as far as the east from the west. Hebrews 8 and verse 12, I will forgive their wickedness. I will never again remember their sins. Colossians 2 and verse 14, He canceled the records of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Amen. We're forgiven. We're free. Now, obviously, you know, we don't continue to sin, right? I mean, no. I mean, we, we do all that we can to turn away from that, right? God deserves us to live a life that, that honors Him, but the point of it is is that our mistakes are paid for. We're, we're set free. God no longer looks at the old me. He sees the Brad who's in Christ. The gazillions of times that I have messed up, guess what? He don't see me that way anymore. He sees perfect. He sees holy. He sees righteous. That's what He sees in you too if you know Christ. See, the curse of sin has been removed. You look, for, look at verse 2, and he says that, that he's freed us from the power of sin that leads to death. See, when Christ came, when he did what he did, the, the curse that was once on us because of sin has been canceled. It's been taken away. Galatians 3 and verse 13, listen to this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us, for it's written that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You ever wonder why like, it had to be a cross? Why didn't he just execute them a different way? Why a cross? See, to, to the first century Jew, 
A person who was on a tree, as Jesus was, was, it represented a man who was cursed of God. And he was. He, he bore the curse of sin. He bore the wrath of God on that tree. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. That's good news. And it's not only that our sins have been taken away. For the first time in Christ, He's even freed us from our sinful nature so we can actually make the choices we're supposed to. See, before Christ, we couldn't do it. We sinned because we were sinners. We sinned because we had a sin nature. No matter how hard we try, it was still sin. Scripture tells us that even the, the most righteous things we could do to God was like filthy rags. It was nothing. Garbage. And yet in Christ... We've been resurrected. We can live a resurrected life in him. Look at verses 5 through 9 again. I'm just going to hit pieces of it. But, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about things that please the Spirit. Letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace, verse 6 says. Then in verse 9, but you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit. See, before Jesus did what he did, we were in a hopeless state of sin. We were controlled by our sin nature that was passed down from the beginning. And yet, you know, before Christ rose from the dead, before he did all that we did, we, we sinned and we had no other choice. Just added up punishment day after day after day. After day. And then when we got saved, just like we see the day of Pentecost, we studied a number of weeks ago, the Holy Spirit comes in, renews us, we're born again. Our old dead person comes to life, and we can now live a resurrected life in the present. Like we no longer have to sin. Our chains have been removed from that old sin nature, that old sin man. Satan no longer has control of us. He no longer has the control of the reins of our life. We can now choose to live fully for the Lord. We have that ability now. We can, through Christ now, because of what he did, we can actually live a life that brings honor and glory to God. So much so the Scripture says that we can even add treasures so that we're building treasure in heaven for the things that we're doing now. So it's not even like, golly, we already get eternal life. We're going to get to heaven and get more stuff because of things that He's allowed us to do. How awesome is that? And because of what Christ accomplished, we who now live with Him will reign with Him forever and ever and ever. Think about the last two verses, 9 and 10. This is really where it just gets exciting. It says, And Christ lives within you. And so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. And look, verse 11 is awesome. The Spirit of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living in you. What happens when we die? How about 2 Corinthians 5.8? To be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord. See, for, for Christians, even when we die, we don't really die. We, we simply pass from mortality into immortality. But you see, the hope of the resurrection doesn't stop there. We're not just going to be like spirits floating around in heaven for all of eternity. No. 
Because of the Spirit of God lives in us, the Scripture tells us that even these mortal bodies someday are going to be popped out of the grave and given new life again. Our our mortal bodies will become immortal bodies. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will, meet him, will not meet him ahead of those who have already died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And first, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, and then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and there we will be with the Lord forever. That's our hope because of the resurrection. When the Spirit of the Holy Spirit of God went into Christ and raised Him from the dead, the exact same thing is going to happen to our dead bodies. I don't care how decayed they are, if they're dust, guess what? Adam was made from dust, and our new bodies will come back from that. Amen? We have hope in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-53 says this, Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we, we, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Do you think the resurrection of Christ matters just a little bit for our lives? Oh my goodness, does it matter? In our, in, our, in our present, we live a new life. We can live a resurrected life, experience an amazing gift of God. Not only can we live for Him, but we experience His joy and His peace and His comfort. And every single day, we're experiencing those things. But friends, that's just the beginning. There's going to be a day we're going to get to experience the fullness of His love. We're going to be in His presence for all of eternity. And I don't know about you, but I'd be happy just being a street sweeper. But you know what the Bible says in Romans eight seventeen? It tells us that since we're his children, we're also his heirs. In fact, we are even heirs of Christ, even heirs of God's glory. Can I tell you something? In spite of all of our sin and all of our mess-ups, if you are in Christ, you're not going to be a street sweeper in heaven. You are going to be somebody that will experience his infinite love in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. The Bible tells us no eye has seen, no ear has heard what the Lord has in store for those who love him. When's it all going to take place? Whenever Jesus decides to come back. When's that going to happen? I don't know, but I sure hope it's soon. I am ready to meet him. Friends, that first Easter weekend changed our world forever. And because of what the Lord has done for us, Let's give him the praise and the honor that he deserves from us. Let's give our lives fully to him and serve him with all of our might in the days that we have left. Let's do the work that he has called us to do and let's, let's go share this incredible message of hope, this message of Christ with the people in our families, with the people in our neighborhoods, with the people that we're working with. Let us be diligent in sharing the message of Christ And let's live our lives in expectation, friends, of that wonderful moment as the Scriptures describe when when the Lord splits open the clouds and He comes back for His people.
Because when that happens, whether we're dead before then or whether we're still alive, in that moment with him we shall ever be. And it's all because of what he did for us over Easter weekend. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we have in you. God, the fact of it is, Lord, as I think about how exciting all these things are, Lord, the humbling reality of it is none of us deserve it. Father, not one of us has earned it. It is only by your grace. It's only, God, because you drew us to yourself. It's only, God, because you've given us the faith to understand and to grasp the truth of what you've done. God, your word says that, that on our own there is no one who seeks after God. It's, it's, it's only by your grace, God. We can't, even, we can't even take credit for seeking after you because you sought after us first. How do we say thank you? We can say it 100,000 times, but it's not enough. Father, we could give every moment of our life to you that we have left, and it still wouldn't be enough. But God, with whatever we have in us, use it for your glory. Whatever we can offer, Father, I pray you would take it from my life and from the lives of these people. Let us live for you in a way that, that declares your praise to the world. That live our lives in a way that shows people that we have been raised to new life. That shows people, that shows this world that we've been changed. And let's tell them why. It's only because of Jesus Father God, I praise you for the hope that we have in him. I praise you for the, for the change that Christ has had in my life and for the life that, of the lives of these people here, Lord God, and I praise you for our future hope and we're going to be with you forever and ever and ever in your presence. I praise you, Lord, for those things. Give us, God, the grace to live for you. And Heavenly Father, I would just ask one more thing, Lord. Just because, God, even though I believe the vast majority of us in here know you as Savior, God, there may be one that don't. And so, Heavenly Father, Lord God, we have shared the gospel <laughs> in extent tonight, Lord God. And I just pray that if anybody here has never made a decision to follow you in faith, that has never asked Christ into their life to be their Lord and Savior, God, that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would simply call out to you and ask Christ to come into their life, to be their Savior, to be the Lord, to forgive them of their sins, God. And your word promises in Romans 10, 13 that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Father. So anybody in this place, anybody listening to this that has never made that decision today. Let that be the day of their salvation, I pray in Christ's name. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're going to sing a song um, that, that is so